Well, good morning. It is good to see you all here this morning. Several years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I asked uh, my youth group, I said, they were, you know, we were gathered in the youth room, and there was a, a good-sized crowd, and they were doing what teens do, and there's a lot of noise and energy, and it was a lot of fun. And I, I asked them, I said, well, how would things change in here if the doors were to open and back, and Jesus Christ were to walk into the room? And it kind of prompted an interesting discussion. I want to get you thinking that way a little bit this morning, and then I want to tell you what I told them, and what I told them was this. God is here this morning. The Holy Spirit dwells among us this morning. Uh, The power of the Spirit of God is enormous, and it is in this place. And God wants to do something here this morning. You're not here by accident. Each one of us, and I just admire you so much for showing up this morning and and coming and standing in the presence of the living God and lifting up songs to him and now allowing yourself to kind of be exposed to the truth of his word. And then through the power of the spirit who dwells among us this morning, going out and acting upon what you've heard. Last week, uh, and as we uh, continued our series on evangelism, I talked about storytelling. And that it is powerful, something powerful happens when we tell our stories uh, to other people. And it can be life-changing. And I reached out to a person who goes to our church here. He also happens to be my uh, primary caffeine dealer. Some of you know uh, Jimmy Domashovsky. And I asked him to come this morning and tell him a little bit. Uh, by the way, if you haven't been to Jimmy's, that's a good cup of coffee. It's a solid cup of coffee. I'll give you a plug right now. But Jimmy's going to come at this time. And I've asked him to tell his story because I think it's not an uncommon story in the church. And I think it can be an example of God turning a death to life and transforming and changing people. Would you welcome Jimmy? Thank you. Pastor Mike said, my name is Jimmy, and uh, been doing a little bit of research this week and a lot of thinking. I think it was about uh, 10 years ago that I gave my testimony about this same subject. Um, first of all, I'd like to, I'd like to mention something. Um, it'd be really nice to have a pulpit up here, because I brought notes today. And I was mortified when I walked in the sanctuary and I looked up here and I've never realized this, there's no pulpit. So I don't even know if I'm, if I'm gonna be able to use my notes, so we'll see how this goes. Um, I would also like to thank my wife. You know, I have put through her through a lot in the last 14 years. Um, I would love to stand up here and tell everyone that 10 years ago when I stood in front of the church and I talked about my sexual purity issues and struggles with pornography, that that would be the end of it, that somehow that would fix it and we could all, I could move on and, and everything would be better, but it didn't end there. It's been, it's been a struggle since then. There's, I have good times, I have good days, bad days, everything in between. And doing this research and kind of getting back into starting these FMO groups, because I've taken a little bit of a sabbatical for the last two or three years, it's really common for these issues when they come up in marriage to end in divorce. It's somewhere of 50 to 60% that get divorced. Obsession with pornography is mentioned specifically. 
So um, I, I'm not a big fan of the word pornography because a lot of times, I know for myself, my story, uh, one of the things I used to do when it was brought up uh, in front of the church and it was talked about is I would kind of discount myself from that group. I would tell myself that what I did is, uh, you know, when I, when I looked at stuff online or, or researched things, that it wasn't, it wasn't pornography. It was something different because I had this definition of, of porn in my head and what I was doing wasn't that. It was something totally different. And so when the pastor would talk about it or I'd hear about accountability groups and say, oh, well, yeah, that's not for me because what I do isn't technically what they're talking about. And for that reason, I, I don't like to rely on that word, although it does silence a room of people faster than I think any other word you can say. <laughs> it is, you could hear a pin drop right now. It is dead silent. Uh, but my wife stuck, stuck with me through all this, and, I've, and you would, you know, if you knew every detail about the last 10 years of my marriage, you would think I was trying to get her to leave me. And, and so I just want to say how much I appreciate that from her. Um, so my story began as, as an adolescent, and this is a common, common story, especially with young men. And I, I found myself, you know, kind of drifting in and out of it. You know, I would grew up in a, a very rigid Baptist church where we were told every Sunday not to sin. That was the basis of our faith was everything's great if you don't sin. If you don't sin, you're fine. You know, you can do whatever you want, just don't sin. And so I, I obsessed over this. I was like, oh man, I'd stress out about sinning. And so when you got into porn and when I started you know, going through adolescence, started being attracted to girls, it was, you know, I would screw up and I would feel bad. And ironically, that would make me do it again because I would feel bad. And then this, this uh, the other term that I'd, I'm not a big fan of is sexual addiction. So I basically became a sex addict. And so that's another term that I tried to keep myself away from, distance myself from as much as I could, because when I think of an addict, I think of somebody who is strung out in a gas station bathroom somewhere with needles hanging out of their arms and just totally oblivious to what's going on. That's an addict to me. But what a sex addict is, is not contrary to popular belief or secular belief, it's not someone addicted to having sex, it's somebody that uses any form of sex, whether it's viewing of pornography, whether it's uh, cheating on your spouse, flirting with somebody. I mean, the list goes on. There's, there's lots of things that fit this category. It's using that to medicate, to self-medicate. And one of the things that came up in some of my research, uh, which is, it's really difficult to research pornography, I found myself sick to my stomach the whole time. And I've, I've been doing this pretty extensively for the last 10 years, and the statistics, they aren't getting better, they're getting worse. And um, one, of the, one of the studies out there is the link between depression and viewing of pornography. There's, there's a very strong link there. And um, anyway, so fast forward, uh, I met my wife at a very young age, I, was, I think I was 21, and she was uh, 18 or 19, or, sorry, 19 or 20. And I told myself, you know what, I've got this problem, but once I get married, that'll take care of it. That'll fix it. It'll all go away. I'll finally be able to do what I was told I couldn't do till I was married, and that will solve all my problems. Things were great for about six months, and then everything creeped back in. 
You know, these are habits that I had been a slave to for years. And then I found myself in a tough spot. What do I do? I've, I've, do I go to my wife and tell her what I was doing, what I was thinking about, what I was looking at? What if she leaves me? What if she takes the kids with her? What if I go through a divorce? What if I'm like everybody else who's 21, 22, 23, tried getting married at a young age and it didn't work out? I had several friends that went through divorces at young ages. And so I convinced myself that the best thing to do was to not do anything and solve the problem on my own. This is also a common story that I hear when I meet with other men that struggle with these issues. And about two or three years into the marriage, 10 years ago, actually about four years, um, my wife and I did what a lot of couples did back then. We shared a Facebook. And uh, I was looking up some stuff that I shouldn't have been, and some stuff came up when she was looking at things, because you can see, like, searches and things like that on Facebook. And I remember I had gone to bed early. I think we had uh, just two kids at that point, and she was down. One of them was just a newborn. Eli was just a newborn. And she came up, and she had the phone in her hand. She was shaking and crying. She said, Jimmy, what, what is this? Is this you? Is this some kind of mistake? Like, who's looking up these things? And at that moment, I had this just, like, this, you know, this load of bricks got dropped on me. What do I do? Do I lie and hope that she believes it and just move on and still work on trying to fix it myself like I had been for the last four years? Or do I just tell her and just rip the Band-Aid off and see what happens? So I did. I said, that's me. I'm really sorry. You know, I'm, I'm the one that was doing that. And it was, it was real rough for a couple weeks. Turned into a couple months. Um, and that's where we were able to work things out. Obviously, spent a couple weeks on the couch, which is compared to other people's stories, pretty good. Um, and that's, that's when I sought help, and I got connected with these four men-only groups and um, started attending those. And that's, that's where the real healing starts, is, is with these groups. And like I said earlier, I wish that that's where the journey ended, but this is something that, that constantly needs our attention. You constantly have to work at it. I do really well with this when I'm in a group, when I'm working on it. And one of the things that comes up quite a bit when you tar start talking about pornography and accountability groups is some people, some people probably in the building today and the sanctuary have been in accountability groups in the past. And one of the things that is difficult is to have an, a, a good accountability group because typically accountability group is a bunch of guys meeting up, talking about all the things they did wrong in that week, and then everybody else making them feel bad for doing it. And then you meet again the next week, and the same thing, same thing, and then everybody, you know, year into it, they're like, why, why do we meet? We're not getting anywhere. So the four men only group uh, was started by a pastor a few years ago, and it really dives into why. Why are we doing this? Because on paper, it doesn't make any sense. I have a beautiful wife. I have an awesome family. I have, really good, I have a really good job. Uh, got everything going on. There's, no, there's nothing on paper that, or nothing looking from the outside looking in that should say, I need anything else in life. But the reality is, is these sexual purity issues, that it, it's an addiction. It affects the same part of your brain as drugs do. And that's not an excuse to say, sorry, 
you know, I can't stop doing it, it's not my fault, it's like a drug, you know, somebody showed it to me when I was 12 and now I can't stop. No, that means that you need to treat it that way. It's the, the same story over and over again of I tried so hard, I prayed really hard, I read the Bible more and it didn't work. It might work for a little bit, but the white knuckle approach is only a temporary fix. So, one of, the, one of the things that also came up in my research that I was a little bit, uh, I don't know what the right word is, not frustrated, but I was shocked. So this is something, and depending on where you look, uh, anywhere from 60 to 80% of men who go to church regularly admit to looking at porn or engaging in some kind of sexual impurity at least once a month. Okay, so it, some places you look at 60, some 80, so somewhere in the middle is probably the truth. The problem with a lot of these statistics is it's really hard to be honest with this. This is one of those things where it's bad because people aren't talking about it. It's bad because, and because nobody talks about it, if you struggle with it, you, you convince yourself you're the only one. You don't want to be the guy that rocks the boat and starts talking about this and then realize that you're the only one that can't get it right. You're the only one that can't get it straight. So... But what I found out in this research is we have all, you know, statistically, you have all these people that struggle with it, but only 7% of churches have resources for men who struggle with it, or women. It's actually a growing number of women who also struggle with a lot of the same thing. It's not near as much as men, but it's, it's the number's not going down, it's going up. It's pretty scary. But I'm, I'm happy, very happy that Pastor Mike here is okay with us having a group. In fact, he supports it. I was excited to get the phone call this week about him having experience with it. And, you know, for the first time in a while after COVID and everything else we have going on, I was pretty excited to come to church today. That's awesome. Um, I have a little bit of homework. It's probably going to get me in trouble, but I'm just going to go for it. So this, this is a big issue because we don't talk about it, right? It, it's a taboo subject. You know, we don't talk about it normally with our kids. For some reason, it doesn't come up at the dinner table. I don't know why. Um, probably a lot of reasons why. But I challenge everyone to talk about it. You know, it doesn't have to be bad. It's something that you can bring up. You can get it out in the open. And if there's something going on there, you know, now you have a resource. You can come join me on Thursday nights here at church. Um, you can reach out to myself. I believe my number is available somewhere. Um, and uh, call me, text me, whatever. But it'd be good to get it out in the air because I've, I've met with men that have struggled with this for 30, 40, 50 years, and then their wife finds out when they're retired in their 70s, and they spent their retirement alone. You know, it does, it, it's something that's good to get out in the open. And uh, I challenge everyone to talk about it. And it's been pretty lonely these last couple of weeks. I've been the only one going to the group. So if somebody could uh, <laughs> join me, that'd be great. There you go. Hey. Yeah. That's, that's pretty brave, right? And here's what I like about it. Okay, here's what I like about it. Is that a lot of folks are in churches where you can't talk about this thing. And sometimes we present an idea to our society that it's going to be this perfect uphill trajectory. And when we do that, then we lack the freedom to kind of talk about these things here. Accountability works. 
meeting with other men works, having difficult, statistically speaking, and he hit on it, majority of the men in our church are dealing with this. And Jimmy wants accountability. So we need, we need, we need folks there with Jimmy on Thursday nights. You can go to our gathering page and check it out. And um, the, the uh, um, what time is it on Thursday? Uh, six o'clock. Are you meeting this Thursday at Thanksgiving? Uh, this Thursday we aren't, but if I have anybody reach out, we can do it Wednesday night. Talk to him, reach out to him. If you're a woman in here that's struggling or you've got a spouse that's struggling, you don't know what to do, I, here's, here's, here's my pledge. If you reach out to me, if you're a man or a woman and this is taking a toll on your life, reach out. Reach out. Reach out to me, send me an email. It will be purely confidential. I will get you with your permission in contact with the right people. But would you thank Jimmy? Thank you, Jimmy. And So why do we talk about this in a series on evangelism? Because we live in a society that, where there's a lot of brokenness, right? Where there's a lot of hurting. And we need each other. The church has to be a place where we can come together and wrestle with these tough things. You know what? There's statistics out there that indicate that a majority of pastors in evangelical churches are viewing pornography. Okay? Think about that for a minute. But here's the thing. We have a God that loves us. And it may not be pornography. You may be in here dealing with a, a challenging marriage this morning. You may be dealing with drug or alcohol addiction. This is a place to encounter Jesus and let the Holy Spirit work to heal us. Together. Together. So let's uh, open up God's word this morning. Let me start with a question. If somebody were just to drive into our county, into Lewis County, and start looking around... What would they think are our priorities as a community? What would be the things that are important to folks living here? What would our buildings, our schools, our politics, our gatherings, our billboards, our advertisements, what would they communicate to an outsider? And then for the church, let me ask this question. What does this community need? As we continue to talk about evangelism this morning, we're going to look at an encounter that the great evangelist, the Apostle Paul, had on one of his journeys. I'm going to ask one of our youth sponsors this morning, Megan Bradley, is going to come. And out of respect for God's word, why don't we stand as she reads Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Good morning, Megan. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Will you thank David for me? Thank you, Megan. You may be seated. The most loving thing you can do in the world is to tell other people about Jesus. Or show other people who Jesus is by the way you live. So let's learn a little bit about how we can do this from the great evangelist this morning. Let me start with a question. What's your attitude towards your community, your neighbors? What is your attitude towards the lost? While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. I love that language. He was distressed. Don't you like that? I mean, I don't like that he was distressed, but I think that word tells us something about Paul's heart. There was, there was probably some anger here. There was probably some frustration. But that frustration actually led to caring, caring for the people. He was, you know, when you see somebody harming themselves or doing things that were potentially dangerous, it causes distress. Athens was an interesting place. Its glory years have, had faded after it had been overwhelmed by Rome. But it was still known as a center for uh, culture, for philosophy, for architecture, for art, and, and even religion. And, and folks like to gather and, and uh, talk about all these things. Talk was big in Athens. It was a city thick with idols. I think it could be reasonably argued that the United States in 2022 is a place that has its fair share of idols, if we were to be honest. An idol is anything we put above God even good things. Most of us have struggled with some form of idolatry. When we elevate things in our life to make us happy, that's a pretty natural thing to do, right? But when they eclipse God, when they rise above the status of God in our lives, they move to idol status. What was interesting here to me was Paul's response. He's distressed, he cares. He wants to engage these people. Sin should frustrate us. Sin should concern us. When we look at, a lot of times when we look at, and, and let me challenge us with an idea this morning, church. A lot of times in our culture in 2022, especially with the explosion of social media and all that goes on, a lot of times what, what happens to us is we become angry 
at sinners, when in reality we should be angry at sin. And there is a distinction here, right? A friend of mine one time was talking, and he said, imagine that sin is a prison. Sin is a prison uh, uh, with high walls, with barbed wire, and it has trapped people. They are stuck inside the prison. Inside, well, all of us have been inside that prison at one time or another with, with, with something that's led to brokenness in our life, right? And, and so... As, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are distressed that people are in the prison, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of what, what um, passes for Christianity in 2022, is we, we, we as Christians, we get pretty amped up. We know there's this prison of sin, and we charge the prison, and we break through the walls, and then we start beating up the prisoners, You catch that? We start beating up the prisoners when we're actually called to be liberators of the prison. Jesus himself made this clear. He said in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery to the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Folks, we have been prisoners at one time or another, right? I know for a fact that as Jimmy was talking this morning, some of your hearts were stirred. And you started considering some of these things in your own life, in the context of your own life. And God desires to free you from uh, that prison. And he desires us to be a church that that is out in Lewis County freeing prisoners. Freeing prisoners. That was Jesus' mission, and that is our mission. Our methods are violently important, vitally important. We should be prepared to reason with people. That's the language that's used here. Look at what happens in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. I like the word reasoned. Paul was ready to have a conversation with anybody who was willing to have a conversation with him. Isn't that great? I would love our church to be made up of people who folks around Lewis County go, you know, I don't know a lot about what's going on there at that church over by the high school, but I know that those people care about me and are willing to talk to me and are willing to be there in difficult times. We need to be willing to have the hard conversations, and conversations require effort. By the way, let me, let me just say something this morning. Some of you will disagree with this, uh, but you're wrong. Um, I'm just, you, you can disagree with it and be right, but I don't think you will be. Um, conversations rarely happen on social media. Conversations rarely happen on social media. If they're going to happen, they're going to happen over a cup of coffee. Or they're going to happen with our neighbors over the fence. Or they're going to happen in our workplace. Or when we're down uh, watching our kids play sports. That's where conversations can happen. We're to be a people of conversation. By the way, God has been offering us conversations since the beginning. Since Adam and Eve fell, 
God has been trying to have these conversations with us. Back in Isaiah, the prophet says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God himself is saying, hey, I want to reason with you. I want to talk to you. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. They're like, although they're, they are like red crimson, they shall become like wool. If God is willing to meet us where we're at and not approach us uh, in a way, uh, God, God, one of the songs we sang this morning talked about mercy being about judgment. God approaches us with mercy so that we may avoid judgment. Can we have the same attitude? Can we have the same attitude? If God's willing to offer that to us, can we offer that to other people? What's more, look at where and whom Paul engaged. Look at, look at his technique here. Paul is missional. He goes to where the people are. The days of us waiting for people to walk into this building, folks, they're over. We live in a post-Christian world. If we're just like a club, there's better clubs, right? That have better benefits. We're actually calling people to come in here and sacrifice. We're asking people to, to reorder their whole life under the lordship of Jesus Christ and let everything else be subservient to Jesus the King. And when we do that, we experience full life. First off, he starts in, in this religious place, this, the, the synagogue. His audience are Jews. There are also some, some Greeks there that know the Lord. It's this religious setting. It's a place where we would expect... Uh, to, there to be conversation about God things. So he's meeting with the, the religious leaders of the day in the synagogue and having this conversation. But where else does he say, where else does this passage say he went? He went to the marketplace, right? So that's where anyone is. Uh, it, in, in the terms of the day, this would have been known as the Athenian Agora, a place of government education, a place of commerce. It was the place where the business life and the social life and the commercial life of the community intersected. John Stott, who's a theologian, has said that uh, this place would have been, in, in modern terms, like a park, a city square, a corner, a shopping mall, a marketplace, a pub, a neighborhood bar, a cafe, a discotheque, a student cafeteria, wherever people meet when they're at leisure. Do we see our communities that way as opportunities to share, other, share with others just about Jesus? By the way, you don't know, what's the old saying? Share Christ at all times if necessary, use words. There's all sorts of ways we can share Christ, folks. One of them is later today. I expect a good portion of you to walk down the hall and get some free pizza. That's not why you're going, but there will be free pizza. Um, but I want you to go down there and start loading totes that we can give those out to folks, right? To share in our community with folks in need. Do you hang out at any of the places that we mentioned? I remember one time when I was up and working in Tumwater at a church, uh, my senior pastor and I were out driving. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning and we're driving down Capitol Boulevard and there's this sort of old sort of rundown tavern and the parking lot was full. And uh, uh, he, he said, I wonder who's in a tavern at 10 o'clock in the morning? And uh, I go, I don't know, let's go see. 
which by the way is a huge thing for Nazarenes. Some of you know I have a Nazarene background. So the idea of, right, some, some of you know this, right? Uh, the idea of uh, a stepping into a bar at 10 in the morning um, is, uh, is, is pretty, st- but we went in and just people were asking us, we had, a, had some food and we're talking to folks about who we were and why we were there. And uh, I don't think, I, 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 we didn't have any converts that morning, but we did have some people that knew that a couple of pastors from the Nazarene church stopped in, communicated with them. Can we see our world as a mission field? Paul's faithfulness and willing to take risks actually opens more doors for him. Look what happens. Uh, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and resurrection. To, To both of these groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, the idea of death becoming a life would have been crazy. Kind of this foreign talk. They, they just wouldn't have believed it. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics uh, would have looked down on this and been highly skeptical. The Greeks loved to talk. That was one of the things they were really good at. They liked to talk about everything. They didn't even need Facebook or Twitter. So anyway, after this initial conversation, he gets an invitation to the Areopagus. Right? Now, the Areopagus would have been the chief sort of legislative and judicial body of the culture of the day. The group was given the authority, by the way, to allow for for traveling teachers to come in and teach. So there would have been some curiosity. And because of his faithfulness initially in the synagogue, he gets invited to the seats of power. So these hearers want to see what Paul is talking about. The hearers were definitely skeptical. So it's really interesting knowing the skepticism, what he chose to focus on. You know what he chose to focus on? Resurrection. He focused on resurrection. Death to life. Let me challenge you with a little evangelism idea this morning. Every conversation that we talk about with folks that are pre-Christian really is a death to life conversation. Every single one. We had a great example of it this morning. There is death in sexual addiction. It is destructive. It it, it mows through marriages. It damages lives. It wounds people. There are victims. And the God of the universe doesn't desire we stay in dead places. So we want to be a place that offers hope. Every person you meet is struggling with something. Resurrection is the the reason that Jesus Christ came. The moment he walks out of that tomb is the pivotal, the, the main moment in all of human history. In fact, if you go forward in the story to the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, we read this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, and pain. For the old order of things has passed away. What's the old order of things? Death. Death dies because of Jesus. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
I am making dead things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Jesus Christ is about bringing life, and we have to... We have to be about bringing life. Every time we see somebody hurting, broken, lost, it is an opportunity to speak life, right? To come to them and, and say, you know what? There is hope. You don't have to stay this way. Death to life is the ultimate message of the empty grave. Most of us have had dead things in our life. Dark places where all of a sudden Jesus invaded and we were changed. Know this, the people you're talking to may be skeptics, but some, perhaps even many, want to hear about life coming from their dead situation. And sharing, them with friend, and sharing life with friends should be a powerful motivator to us. N.T. Wright has said, the people who believe in the resurrection and God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. This death to life should just motivate us. It should light us on fire. Because what we have, we want other folks to have, right? It should change us. Can we be that people? I love what Paul does here. And this is, we're about to wrap up here, uh, but I love what Paul does here. Paul creatively engages with the Athenians and identifies their greatest need. In, in verse 22, he stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this very inscription to an unknown God. He later even refers to some of the things the poets have said that point towards God. Paul uses their culture and their art, and he says, you have this unknown God. Let me tell you who God is. He sees a door, and he walks through it. Culture. Paul uses what's in front of them to make a comparison. He points to lifeless stone carvings. And then he says, you know what? I know where you can find life. Remember, he was distressed when he saw what Athens had become. He actually now uses an idol to point to the right way. Let me tell you about resurrection. Your statues may say to an unknown God, but there's a God who wants to know you. He looks to need and identifies the real need that we all have. He points out to them, you're religious, but you still need saving. Here, here's a reality, and it's a grand one. Everyone is looking for something to make them complete. Uh, a great philosopher one time said that each person has a God-shaped hole, a God-shaped vacuum inside of them. And most of us, for our entire life, try to find things that will fill that space. Some of them are good things. We get married, and we think, well, that's going to bring us uh, eternal joy. But it doesn't. It can be good. Or kids. Kids will solve our problems, but kids don't solve problems very often, right? Some of us look to money, things, property, cars, houses. We put them in our life. And I remember several years ago, we bought a big house up in, up in Lacey. We designed everything in it. And it was great for a couple weeks, and then it was just a house, you know? 
and it didn't provide the happiness that we thought it would bring. Most of us are trying to find joy. Most of your neighbors, most of your friends, most of the people on your kids' sports teams, most of the people by the water cooler at work are looking for joy. And all of creation, the whole story of creation points to the fact that there's only one source of joy that will actually work. People want to know real, lasting love. They don't feel worthy of love. Folks, that's an entry point. Most people out there today are lonely and isolated and they want to be loved. And we as a church can come in and stand in front of them and say, you are loved. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? Our task is an urgent one. Look at what Paul says here. He makes it clear. In verse 30, he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We're called to repent. For he said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Folks, our time is limited. Most of us spend a tremendous amount of energy trying to avoid the fact that our time is limited. That life can be a vapor, here and then gone. Solomon Ecclesiastes says, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. What? What a horrible passage, right? And he says this, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than a party, he's saying. But then he points out why. He says, death is a destiny of everyone. So the living should take heart. What that passage is saying, in very extreme terms to make a point, what he is saying is this. He's saying, focus on eternity. Right now is a whisper, a vapor. We all have a profound responsibility to love people into the kingdom. Now let me put you at ease this morning. We live in this Western culture. And some of us in here are in sales. I've been in sales. Some of you have been in sales. And so we have a responsibility to go out there and tell people about a product. Now, we're not selling a product. I want to make that very clear. But here's the thing in, in sales. In sales, how do we measure success? Something sold, right? And until it's sold, it's not a success. And I think for a lot of us in Western culture, we tend to view evangelism that way, and it's why we are prevented from doing evangelism, because we think, oh no, if I don't do this just right, if I don't say just the right words, they won't come to know Christ. And I will have screwed up, and, and therefore. You see, as followers of Jesus, though, our measure of success is this, just faithfulness. But just pointing people towards Christ through our words, but also through our actions, that is success. How do I know it's success? I think that what Paul did in, in Athens is um, a success. But I want, to look what ha I want you to look at what happens here. It's interesting to me, this passage is, theologians have, have unpacked this passage for a long time as an example of evangelism done well. But look at what happens. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Okay, so a big chunk of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. And then read what happens in verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. 
also a woman named Damaris, uh, and a number of others. Success came when Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, revealed Jesus to the people there and talked about death to life. The Holy Spirit is at work here. Your contribution is not enormous, but it is significant. You are charged with calling and telling people about Jesus, but you are not responsible for what people do with the information. So you can be released from that. Look what happened. This passage that has been put up by, by Bible scholars for years is an example of well-done evangelism. Look what happens. A couple of people come to know Jesus. It's interesting. One was uh, Dionysius, who was a prominent citizen, but the other was uh, a woman named Damaris, who probably was at the lower end of the social stratus. I think it's interesting that, 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 that the writer here chose to point that out. We have two people, really a small crowd that just came to know Jesus. The majority seemed to have wandered away, but a couple came. A prominent citizen and a citizen who was not so prominent, maybe on the outside. Folks, we have a call to all of those people. So when you talk to people, value them. Even the broken ones. You know why you value the broken ones? Because we were broken, right? In fact, some of us are still a little broken, right? Listen to people. You're not trying to complete a sales pitch, cold call. Listen to people. Hear their story. When they tell you their story, that provides you opportunities to use those Paul-like moments where he pointed to the, the, the altar and pointed to the poets. We can go, I hear your story, and I hear you're going through that. I've gone through something similar. Can I tell you what worked for me or what I found? Find those points of connection. Listen to their perspective. Folks, there is a real chance that when you go out and talk to people, Many of them will have been wounded by the church. And not just this church, but the church. I mean, what I, one of the things that, that, that caught my ear when Jimmy was talking this morning was he, was he grew up in a more fundamentalist mindset where you couldn't talk about these things, right? You couldn't, you couldn't share anything about these things. So we need to be a listening people that hear perspective. I, I mentioned it last week, avoid Christian jargon. People don't know, you know, people don't, like if you start talking about, you know, um, and, and I, I want to be very careful here. I mean, these, these, these aren't bad theological terms, but they're not useful terms and people don't understand them. So if you start talking about the blood, people will go, the blood? There's blood involved, you know? The, uh, but what you can talk about is, no, there's transformation. And Jesus made a sacrifice for us. Sacrifice is probably better language than the blood. Let them ask questions. By the way, here's something that I learned in youth ministry almost 30 years ago. You know what's an okay question or an okay answer when somebody asks you a question? I don't know. I learned early on with, with young people, Tim, you probably know this, that I don't know is an okay answer. What I, would, what I would tell kids when they asked me a spiritual question that I didn't know, I would say, I don't know the answer to that, but let's journey together and figure out what the answer to that is. People respect that. And then pray. I gave you a little list last week, a little handout. Some of you may still have it in your Bible. If you don't, you can make one up on your own. Right now, write down five names. As we're singing the song, write down five names of people this morning that you can be praying for. 
And ask the Holy Spirit, open windows for me to step through. And then step through those things. Step through those open doors, those open windows. Move through them and share people, uh, share with people the love, the transformation, the death from life experience that Christ, or life from death experience that Christ offers can be powerful.